In part two of a series we started last week called Enemies of the Heart. Uh, it's a kind of an ominous title, uh, but this is based on a book by an American preacher, actually, by the name of Andy Stanley, and I really like some of the stuff that he has to say in this book. Don't agree with every single thing. I, I don't think you'll ever agree with everything that you read in any book, uh, but it's really good content, and so I've kind of massaged it a little bit uh, for, for our setup over here, and um, just to review, for those of you who weren't here last week, last week we talked about the different messages that we're hearing about uh, behavior and versus the, 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 the inner workings of the heart. And you remember uh, we talked about how the message of the culture, uh, the message of the world is that it's all about your, your activities. It's about your outward behavior your beliefs are a secondary thing, or your heart is a secondary thing. And we, we looked at the current event of uh, the whole Canada summer jobs controversy, you know, where our, our prime minister has said, your beliefs are your beliefs, as long as you don't act on them. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's, that, again, the same type of messaging. Whatever's going on on the inside, that's your business. But we look at the outward behavior uh, but the message, it seems, from the Bible is the reverse, where God says to us, it's not, well, it's not that it isn't about your behavior, but primarily it's about your heart. And your behavior, uh, even the things you think, even the things that you say, are a reflection of what's really in the heart. And eventually, what's in the heart bubbles over. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks so what's going on in the heart, it just, it just kind of bubbles over. Uh, and that is a very different way of thinking about things. And Jesus was very candid about this in a, in a confrontation that he had with the ultra-religious elite of his time. And they accused him and said, you know, your people, your followers don't wash their hands before they eat. Uh, you're supposed to be the great rabbi, and you don't follow the teachers, the, the elders of the law have this tradition, and you don't follow it. Uh, who do you think you are? And Jesus turned around and basically said, who do you think you are? Uh, he, he basically turned the tables on them, and he said, you know, you, you religious folks, you can't even follow the Ten Commandments. And they probably were stunned when he said that, but he said, you know, the Bible says to honor your father and your mother. Well, what you religious folk do is you say any gift that you, that you any good deed that you do uh, to your father and your mother is really korban, which meant a gift to God. So you're saying, well, you know, it's, it's to God, it's to the temple, it's to worship God, but you nullify the commandment of God by doing that. You're, you're hypocrites, he said. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, for it's what comes out of the heart that makes a man unclean, and he lists a whole agenda of things there, so he really turned the tables on them. So for, for the Bible, for what Jesus says, uh, the question is more, what's going on inside of your heart? How's your, how is your heart doing? And we looked at the physical, the physical heart, and the physical heart can sometimes be uh, a little time bomb. Uh, you, don't, you don't know necessarily that you may have terrible problems with your heart, but you may feel uh, okay once in a while. You have shortness of breath once in a while. You have headaches once in a while. You can't sleep through the night. You have acid reflux, whatever. So you 
take some pills and some medication to numb all that, and it seems to go away for a little bit, but could be that your heart may be in serious, serious trouble until somebody looks on the inside to tell you you may not ever know. Uh, and the same can be true for the, the spiritual heart, which is primarily what the Bible is referring to when it talks about the heart. Uh, the author of Proverbs said, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. And so we have to intentionally take a look and examine what's going on on the inside. Uh, someone I was talking to last week in our church said that you have to self-confront and self-confrontation is the hardest kind. This is very, very aptly put, I think. And so this is really what the Bible is challenging us to do. And we, we started looking at these four toxins that can make their way into our hearts and can damage us, damage our relationships, damage our, our walk with, with God and so forth. And we talked about how those four things, we'll get into them in a, in a minute, have a common dynamic to them. Uh, it's the dynamic of debt. Uh, probably, if, if I were to ask for a show of hands, most of you here have some sort of debt. You owe somebody something. You owe the bank for your house. You owe the car dealership for your car. You owe the student loan. You owe MasterCard and Visa. You know, that's why people get so depressed in January and February because Christmas wants to be paid for, right? So you, you, so you, 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 all of you know what it feels like to be in debt. If you don't know what it feels like to be in debt, then may God bless you. Uh, and you should come up here and teach us all how not to get in it. Um, but if you don't know what it's like to be in debt, you probably know what it's like to be owed money and never get paid. Maybe you're one who's, who has lent money and you never got it back. Well, there's a, there's a debt debtor dynamic if you go to the next slide. This is, um, I don't know if you actually read your credit card statements or, you know, if you're, if, if you're like others, you, as soon as it comes, you open it, you see how much is owed, you see the date it's owed, and you close it until you have to pay it, right? The last second is when you'll open it and make like the minimum payment. You know, a lot, a lot of us are like that. Uh, in Canada, it, apparently the numbers are getting worse and worse, they tell us, and you know, they've just raised interest rates a couple of times in the last 12 months. But anyway, if you read one of your credit card statements, for example, if you have $10,000 of credit card debt and you're, you're, you're at 19.9%, on the, on the credit card. Yeah, Al is right, yeah. And you're making minimum payments. It's gonna take you 83 years. You will pass from this world and still be in debt. No, I don't think any of you are gonna live another 83 years. So if you have that 10 grand and you're at 19.9, it's gonna take you 83 years. That's like a jail sentence. Okay, um, and that's what it'll take to pay it off. Now, these four toxins that we're looking at, they have a debt-debtor kind of dynamic, okay? Uh, so it, when you owe people money, just physical money, you've got one or two choices, one of two. E either you pay up or the debt's canceled. 
one or the other. There's really no option. I mean, MasterCard and Visa could be nice to you. They could send you a letter in the mail and they could say, your debt's canceled. And you'd probably be extremely happy if they did that. I've never met a person, though, that that's happened to. Never. I've, I've seen, they'll give you back money if they erroneously take it from you. Maybe if they charged you excessive interest when you made the payment in time and then they tried to gouge you with an extra month's payment, you know, you might be able to call and, and you know, get them to, okay, we'll give you back that. But to, can, to cancel your debt, well, they're going to tell you, you will pay your debt. You will pay it even if you've passed from this world. It's still going to be paid. But debt's like that. Either you pay it or it's forgiven, one or the other. So the same is, is kind of true for these four toxins. So the first one is, is guilt. And in guilt, if you think about it, guilt is there's a debt-debtor thing there. So in guilt, it's I owe you. So the person who lives with guilt, there's a, in the background, there's a constant dynamic there. I did something to this person sometime, perhaps in the past, and there's a debt that I owe. There's perhaps an emotional debt or a physical debt or something, but I know that I did something to this person and I owe them. And so the way that I behave is altered because I'm in constant debt to this person. Uh, in anger, it's, at least in a relationship, it's the reverse. It's, it's you, you owe me. You owe me, and I'm going to make you pay because you owe me. And that's, that's kind of what happens in, in anger. Um, I've, I've worked with quite a few couples over the years, and I have seen that over and over and over again. When in a marriage, uh, there's, there's anger, obvious anger, and you start to ask questions, and it's, well, this person did this to me. This person, therefore, owes me. And so I'm going to make them pay uh, for what they owe, whatever it may be. Um, so uh, you owe me in anger. In greed, it's, it's a little different. In greed, it's I owe me. So I owe me. Uh, so there's a person walks around with this constant chip on their shoulder, and it's all about them. It's all about more. Why? Because they believe that they owe themselves, uh, you know, eternally. And so there's this constant, constant greed there. And then in jealousy, it's God, he owes me. He gave it to somebody else, but he didn't give it to me. I'm a good person. So God, he owes me. So I'm jealous of this person or these people uh, because really I should have had what they had. So, so God owes me. So that's the debt-debtor dynamic in those four kind of heart toxins. So we, we finished last week by saying, uh, how is your heart doing? If you think about those four, greed, uh, anger, guilt, jealousy, just four, only four. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Those are, all, those are all kicking around <laughs> on the inside of your pastor's heart, okay? I always, always work and keep those things in check. You say, really? A pastor? And you're, yeah, well, member of the human race. So, I mean, I have to deal with those things as well. Uh, so, uh, the question is, how is your heart? And this is what 
This is the, the message from the Bible, you know, a statement from the writer of the Proverbs, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. So what are you intentionally doing to do a little bit of self-confrontation? This is the question. Now, the problem with Christians, uh, in particular, our brand of Christianity, Pentecostal Christianity, which believes in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the miraculous today, we believe that God can do the supernatural, etc., etc. Uh, the problem with that, um, unfortunately, is what we do with that is we manipulate that a little bit. And we remove the obligation of self-confrontation. So we say, well, God, God's the only one that can change me. So I just give my life to God and God will do the work and I don't have to do anything. Because God, after all, you know, he's supernatural and he can do anything he wants. And we try and find examples in the Bible and we just sort of throw our feet, ourselves at, at the feet of Jesus. And we say, change my heart, oh God, because I can't do anything to adjust it myself. And what, what that is, is a little bit of a, of a cop-out. And we remove the responsibility that we have, which is also in the Bible, to guard your heart. So let me just tell you that in these four toxins, and we'll deal with guilt today, uh, there is work that needs to be done on, on our part. And the work is habits need to be developed and skills need to be learned. And you find those things in the scripture. You, you, it's not magic. Uh, you don't say, well, you know, God, just change me and I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm praying hard. Change me, change me, change me. Praying really hard. How come I'm not changing? How come I'm worse than ever? Uh, well, because you've left out the guard your heart part, you see. You've left out the self-confrontation, which is encouraged. Uh, in the scripture. Um, so the, the, the path of change involves the learning of new habits. And learning is another way of saying uh, discipleship. So if, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, then that means we're learners. That means you're a constant student of the way of Jesus, if you will. So a lot, of, a lot of Christians will say they're disciples and all of this, but they do nothing to demonstrate that they're learning and growing deeper and deeper in their walk with God. So it's about learning new, new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking of things, and you learn those things primarily uh, from the Scripture itself. The question is, are we doing what it says? So don't be like the guy who, who's, who prays, uh, Lord, give me a smaller appetite, and I'll start eating less. All right, so you've got a, you know, you've got a, a person who's, who's 350 pounds, um, and he goes to the doctor, and, uh, you know, the doctor says, well, you need to diet. And, and so he, he doesn't want to diet. He just wants, to, he just wants God to magically change him. So he says, well, Lord, give me a smaller appetite, and I'll start eating less. Well, no, you start eating less is what you need to start doing. Maybe God will help you along the way. Maybe he'll help your, your appetite, but you, you've got to change the way that you live. Uh, don't be like the, the, the other guy who, you know, he's, he feels a little strange. Like I said before, he, he can't sleep at night. He's, 
he's got whatever acid reflux or headaches or once in a while he's he's gasping for air and he goes to his he goes to his doctor and the doctor does tests on him and puts him on a treadmill and he he runs on the treadmill he's gasping for air and the doctor calls him back into his office a week later and looks at him with a very serious tone and he says to him on a scale of 1 to 10 1 being the best and 10 being the worst you're a 7 and he says to him, you need to exercise your heart because if you don't exercise your heart, you're, gonna, you're a ripe candidate for an attack of the heart. And so the guy says, well, I can't exercise. I get tired when I exercise. I get sore when I exercise. I look foolish in tights. You know, he makes up all these excuses. And he says to the doctor, can't you just give me a pill or something to make my heart healthy? And then I'll exercise. And the doctor says to him, I'm trying to tell you what to do to make your heart healthy, but you're not listening to me. You, you want some magic formula. You want some kind of a pill to make. I'm telling you what the formula is. You need to exercise. And, you're, and you need to exercise, and that will help your heart. And I'll give you, you, you do this for three days, and once that gets easy for you, I'll give you something a little harder. And he's fiercely resistant. He wants the magic bullet. He wants the, the, he wants the, 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 the magic solution. And the doctor basically looks at him and scratches his head and says, you know, you're, you're, you're being really foolish. This is what you have to do. Now, sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we're like that as Christians, and we expect a transformation uh, by God, some sort of magical thing. When God tells us in, in his word, this is what you have to do in these areas, so are you doing it or are you not doing it? That's the question. Here's the recipe. Here's the answer. It's printed for you in black and white. So if you're a disciple of mine, you do it. This is the question. So when we talk about the first toxin uh, of guilt, which is a heavy one. Uh, and this, again, is the whole I-O-U mentality that people have. So in guilt, I mean, guilt is pretty easy to define. You, you think that you've done something wrong. You, you perceive you have. There's a little voice in your head that tells you you have your conscience, whatever, and you, you, you have a sense, okay, I've done something that's not right here. And there's guilt that comes. And this isn't necessarily a horrendous thing. I mean, if your conscience is speaking to you or Christians, we say, well, if God is speaking to you, then we, well, then you try and do something about your, your guilt. Now, guilt is, is associated, again, this owing thing. But when you think about guilt, there's a, there's a bit of a theft that's, that's happened there. So you think of, the, you think of the, the, the man who's run off and cheated on his wife, um, you know, with his secretary, and he's divorced his wife and run off with his secretary. He already had a couple of kids with his wife, and, you know, he, he's, he, he now feels guilty. He feels a, a guilt and a sense of, well, you know, my, my child now looks at me and says, Daddy, why did you go? Uh, why do you live with this other lady? Why do you... Why don't we see you anymore? And so he feels this sense of guilt toward, toward his kids. So what does he do? He tries, to, he tries to buy stuff for them. He tries to do something to deal with that sense of guilt. 
and deal with that sense of I've done something wrong. But what, what, how does it relate to theft? Well, he took something from his kids. He took something from his wife. Uh, he took stability from the home. He took potential memories away. There's a theft that's taken place there. And so, there, again, there, it all is associated with this guilt, and this person lives with this kind of thing. And so, so what does the person do? They try and find a way to deal with it. Now, here's, here's what Christians do. And this is a big, um, uh, a, a very common, common thing that we do. We, we, of course, say, well, if you want to deal with guilt, you need to confess your guilt, uh, you need to, or you need to confess your your transgression, your sin. You know, and I, I call this uh, a confession misinterpretation. So we take a passage like uh, like this one, First uh, John chapter one verse nine. This is one of these passages that people memorize. You know, do any of you memorize Bible verses anymore? Okay, well, uh, this is one of the things that we, you know, a lot of Christians know this verse if they've grown up in the church at all. Uh, it's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, but verses 8 to 10, I'll read them to you. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ah, but if we confess our sins, so that guy who cheated on his wife, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. The he is God. The, the us is obviously us. And so we look at a passage like that and we get excited and we say, yes, I can bring my sin to God and I can confess my sin to God and he is faithful and he is just, and he will cleanse me from my sin, and he will purify me from all unrighteousness. Yes, that's great. That's amazing. That's the grace of God. And so we take our sin, and we bring it to God. We say, oh, God, I confess. I did this. I did this. I said that. I said that. I thought this. I thought that. Oh, thank you. And, we're, and we're, we say, we're cleansed. God has forgiven us. God, look, he, he has to keep his end of the deal. I've done my part of it. I brought it to God. I confessed it. So now he's going to forgive me. Yes, I can be clean. But you know what happens? We find ourselves doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And sometimes it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. Let me turn a light bulb on for you with this passage of Scripture. Where does it say in this passage that you're to confess your sin to God himself? Only. And the answer is nowhere. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Confess our sins to who? To God only? Maybe yes, maybe no. It doesn't say uh, my point is, what we've done is we've made the verse say that because that is a very convenient escape from a biblical definition of confession. Okay, so some of you are looking at me a little strange. You've not maybe heard this verse this way before. Confession, when you look at it from the, from the uh, perception of the Scripture and from the teaching of the Scripture, involves a whole lot more 
than you going to God privately and dealing with your sin one-on-one with God. It involves a whole lot more than that. And what we've done is we found a way to get around it by using a verse like this, which doesn't even specifically state that all you have to do is bring your sin to God and to God alone. So when you look through the scripture and you look at this idea of confession, say, well, what really is it then? And there's kind of two kinds that we've, we've developed. I think one is more biblical than the other. A lot of times when we confess our sin, especially when we confess it to God and to God alone, um, it is purely to, to heal our own conscience. So we want relief internally for our wrong. And so we say, well, we'll bring it to God and we'll find relief. Can I just tell you, I mean, God, God it's true, he, he cares about your relief, but he cares a lot more about your transformation than your personal relief and your personal, oh, my guilt is now, you know, I feel good about myself. God doesn't want you just to feel good about yourself. He wants you to change. He wants your transformation. And that's a lot more of a difficult process. That's where you start to get into this whole thing of, uh, I need to actually confront myself. Oh, you bet you do. You bet you do. So do we want conscience confession? Or do we want confession that actually leads to change? So let me talk to you for a few minutes about true confession. Uh, from, from the way that the Bible explains what confession is. Confession is a whole lot more than just admitting that you're, you're wrong and that you've done something wrong. It's a whole lot more. So in the Old Testament, uh, in the law, you had a, a principle there uh, which we can call restitution. It's a bit of an old word. It means you, when you've done something wrong, you, you make it right, and you add a little bit more. So you, you, you make restitution for your wrongs. So Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 from the Old Testament law. This is what God told Moses to say to the peoples. You say to the Israelites, if, if any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and, and, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, is guilty... And they must confess the sin that they've committed. Doesn't say to who. They must confess the sin they have committed. And they must make full restitution for the wrong they have done. And they have to add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the person that they've wronged. Now, how can you do that if all you're doing is going in your private room and saying, Oh, God, forgive me. I claim 1 John 1, 9. It's obviously broader than that. It obviously means you need to make it right with the person or the people that you wronged. And that involves a confession that is public. It's not just a private thing between you and God. It's public. You're going to the party that you wronged. Again, this is, you know, 3,500-year-old at least law. From the, from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses. And what is it teaching? It's teaching restitution, and you will add a fifth of the value to it uh, and give it all to the person that you've wronged. So there's no way that this confession can be purely an issue with you and God. 
It has to go further, and it has to go to the wronged party. Uh, you say, well, that's Old Testament. Thank God we don't live in the Old Testament. You know, well, the New Testament's worse, <laughs> okay? So Mark chapter 1, when John the Baptist is, is uh, on the scene and he's baptizing people, you've got this wild guy in the wilderness. He dresses like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Um, he, he eats locusts. I mean, he's, uh, he's quite the prophetic guy. And so John the Baptist, Mark 1, 4, and 5, he appears in the wilderness. He's preaching a baptism of what? Repentance. That's the next word we'll look at, um, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, is he doing it privately or publicly? He's doing it publicly. He's out in the, in the open country, and you've got the whole Judean countryside, and all the people of Jerusalem, they go to him, and what does it say? Confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Yeesh, it's public. It's very public. They're going out to him and they're admitting. It doesn't say how they're doing it. It doesn't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm this or I'm that. Or, you know, he's not saying, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, <laughs> you know. Uh, but there, there's a public thing that's going on. So, again, are we interested in, in uh, conscience confession or true confession? Now, I know this is a bit heavy, so I want you to, I want you to see something a little lighter for a minute, and just, just a, a funny illustration of this and how so desperately our confession is really just to appease our own consciences, okay? If you're listening to this uh, online, uh, those of you who are, YouTube has uh, one of the funniest religious videos that I have ever seen. Uh, just look up, for those of you who are listening, automated confession. If you'll go ahead and play that video, Justin. Now, we, all, we look at the Catholics and we, we say, what a silly thing. They go to their confession booth and they do this, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, and the priest gives, tells them to do these Hail Marys and all that. Can I just tell you, Protestant Christianity, in many ways, we do the same thing. Because, again, we have found a way around biblical confession. Biblical confession has a, it has a public relational community element to it. So here you have John the Baptist out in the wilderness. This is a baptism of repentance, and the people are confessing. Repentance uh, means you're, you're walking one way, you know, toward your, your, your transgression, and you make a decision to turn the other way. It's a change of, of view about the transgression itself. So where you used to love it, where you used to uh, enjoy it, where you used to find ways to do it or whatever the thing is, now your view has changed. You have repented and you no longer like it. You, you have a, had a change of mind, a change of heart about the transgression itself and you look at it from a different view. You have repented. It's a change on the inside toward the activity itself. And so here you have this going on. John the Baptist is baptizing people with this in mind, and you have this confession thing. This is all, this is all public. These people must be so embarrassed. They're not in their private little prayer closets simply working the matter out with God. This is a, this is a public thing. 
okay, well, you look a little further in the scripture. Here's a great example, uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. It's tax time, so you might like this one. Uh, Jesus goes into Jericho, and he, he's, he's passing through the, the town, and you've got a man there. His name is Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. Hmm. How many of you ever gotten a call from the CRA? Did you like it when they called you? You're probably pretty nervous when they call you. What do they want? Don't tell them much. Don't say too much. You know, they may audit you. They may do whatever. Well, back in the day, if you had a tax collector like that, this is a guy who is viewed as a traitor. So he's, he's a Jewish guy, and he's working for Rome, collecting taxes. He's a traitor. He's a traitor to his nation. He's probably gouging people and taking some of the money on the side for himself. So he's not liked at all. And here's Jesus coming into town. Luke tells us about this tax collector of all people, and he's the chief guy. Like, he has probably tax collectors under him, and he was wealthy, probably off the backs of his fellow Jews, and he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, Luke tells us, vertically challenged, he could not see over the crowd. So he runs ahead, and he climbs a sycamore fig tree, Right, and the, to see Jesus since Jesus was coming that way. For some reason, he's desperate to see who Jesus is. He knows everybody around him is looking at him. He knows everyone hates him, but he wants to see who Jesus is. He wants to see him face to face. So he even climbs up this tree to go and see Jesus. And Jesus, when he reaches uh, the spot, he looks up and he sees him and he talks to him. This tax collector hated, hated, traitor to his nation. Zacchaeus, you come down. You come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Of all the people he picks, he picks a traitor. And he says, I want to stay at your house. Oh, my word. How that must have made Zacchaeus feel that this, this miracle-working whoever he was wanted to stay at, of all places, his house. Everybody hates him. He's a traitor. And yet Jesus takes interest in him. And so he came down at once from his tree. And he, what does he do? He welcomes Jesus gladly into his house. And all the people saw this, verse 7, and they began to mutter, of course, he has gone to be the guest of this guy, a sinner, this guy who ripped me off, took all this money from me, and he's going to stay at his house. He's going to, he's going to be his guest. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, 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 Lord, he says, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Ooh, there's something's gone on in his heart. This guy wealthy. He says, I'm giving half of it away, and I'm giving it to the poor. 50% is going to the poor, and he wants to tell Jesus about this. Look, this is what I'm doing. Half to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Mosaic law called for a fifth. He says, I'm going to pay back four times the amount to anybody I have cheated. 
And Jesus said to him, oh, ho, ho, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. There's been a change in this traitor's heart. And he's demonstrating, he's confessing, and he's publicly saying, I'm going to do this for the poor in the community, and I'm going to go to the people who I cheated, and I'm going to give them back four times. This is not a private matter. This is not something that he's just working out privately, him and God. I confess my sins, and so God is faithful and just to forgive me. No, no, no. This is a community problem, and he is, he's got a solution that demonstrates the transformation of his own heart. This is a public, public thing. It's not a private thing, uh, an intimate thing with him and God alone. And I'm not knocking, I'm not saying that's not what you do, but that's not all you do. If you really want to be changed, here's another passage that, you know, we quote it often in Pentecostal circles, but we don't read it that closely. Uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, is any one of you in trouble? Uh, let them pray. Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So he's not, he's not talking about sin yet, but he says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Yes, oh yes, that's, that's a great, great promise. The Lord will raise them up. Yes, oh, we need that, we need that. Yes, 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 and we say, that's great. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Huh? Why, you bring, why is he bringing sin and interjecting sin into the picture? And he goes further. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Oh, that's not private at all. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What's he saying? He's saying you need to treat confession as a public thing because if you want to pray a, a prayer of the righteous and pray for healing to take place and pray in faith and all that, your sin is going to impede you from doing that. It's going to be a, a toxin that's going to affect your ability to pray for one another. So you need to do what? You need to be public about your confession to one another. This is a community statement. There seems to be some sort of relationship here to, to the fact that, that unconfessed sin can hinder the prayer of faith. We love the prayer of faith part, but we don't like the confession of sin part. Well, you know, maybe sometimes we pray and pray and pray and pray, and how come nothing's happening? Well, you know, are you confessing your sin to one another or are you praying a prayer that's blocked by your unconfessed transgression? This is the question that perhaps James is asking, but again, this is a public, public thing. You go further in the scripture, another example from Jesus, and this would have shocked, would have shocked people. Um, he says in the, in the Beatitudes, uh, therefore, 
And you have to read the, all of the Beatitudes to see. But he's talking about relationships and community, transgression in the community and so forth. And he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, this would be referring to the temple. And you're going to the temple and you're faithful. You make the trek to the temple. You bring your gift to the altar of God, you know. And there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. So you've done something, you've transgressed against somebody in the community. What does he say? Leave your gift at the altar. Get out of there. Get out of the temple, leave your gift over there, and you go and you be reconciled to your brother or your sister. Then you go and you do your thing with God. People would have looked at that and they would have said, excuse me? I made this journey to the temple with my sacrifice and all this stuff, and you're telling me it's more important to get right with so-and-so before I worship God? Uh-huh. Jesus is saying that. He's saying, you go and you make it right with the person. You be reconciled with that person, and then you can worship me. We would rather, we would rather the easy way out. Oh, God, we worship you. Oh, forgive me, God. Here's my sacrifice. I did this. I stole this money from this guy. But God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And God is saying, uh, go and work it out with the person. It's like he puts his fingers in his ears. And he's pointing. He's saying, go, go over there and fix it. And then you can come here and worship me. Again, the, the relationships in the community and the relationship with God they're supposed to mirror each other. But what have we done? We've, we've said, ah, we, 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 we confess it to God and God alone. That's it. <laughs> what happens when you confess in a public fashion? Now, I know some of you are saying, well, this is crazy. You're telling me that I have to go. What about you? You're asking me to come and stand in the front and confess my sins to these people? What are you saying? It's crazy what you're saying. I, I'm not saying that. I don't think the Bible is saying that. But we usually know. If, if we transgress against somebody else, we usually know. And we usually have an opportunity to go to the person. We usually have a, have a chance to confess to that person. And that may be really, really humiliating. That may be really, really embarrassing. That may involve all kinds of, oh, this is going to look really bad if I do this. This could affect my reputation. This could affect my job. This could affect this and this and this. How am I supposed to do that? I don't know. You find a way to do it. But that's confession. And when you do that, the odds of you doing that thing again are going to diminish a whole lot. Because you know, uh -huh, I don't want this level of embarrassment again, right? Because, and this is the way that the scripture talks about confession. It's something that is not simply a little thing that you're working out privately. It's something that's public. And, and this happens in relationships all the time. Again, I've seen it a lot in, in, in marriages. My goodness, I mean, the way, that, the way that some Christians treat sin and forgiveness in, in marriage is... I'm not sure what words I have to describe it, you know. So the, the guy's uh, abusive to his, to his wife. Uh, he may be emotionally abusive. Maybe not physically abusive even, but he's emotionally abusive. He says things that he shouldn't say. He's harsh. He's angry. He's unkind. He's uncaring. He's unloving. And, and he, he wants to apologize to his wife. And so he says to his wife, well, you're supposed to forgive me. You're the Christian. 
After all, doesn't your Bible say, da, 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 you have to forgive me, right? This is, this, is, this is not biblical. It's not biblical. Sometimes just talking to some of you, because many of you are married or in relationships or whatever, when you sin against your spouse, you, sometimes the only thing you can do is say, I'm sorry. And you, you don't pull the forgiveness card out and say, you must do this and you must forgive me and all that. Sometimes all you can do is just say, I'm sorry, I was wrong and I will do whatever I can do to pay it back. Here's the thing. We treat people as if they're God. It's God and God alone who gives us grace, who says, I, I died for you on the cross. We'll acknowledge that in communion as we close in a few minutes. It's God and God alone who, who says to you, you cannot pay me back. There's nothing you can do to pay me back for your transgression. I'm the one who's paying on your behalf. I'm the one who went to the cross on your behalf to pay your sin debt, sin debt back to me. I established that debt. I established that payment that you have to pay. I established that you are, you are a sinner and I am holy. And you have transgressed and you have sinned against me, God says. And I will pay back that debt myself because you are incapable of paying it back. You will never be able to pay me back. You will never be able to earn a right standing with me. You'll never be able to be forgiven in front of me on your own merit, on your own works. Never, never, never. So I will do it for you. And so he sent his son to die for us on the cross as an atonement for our sin. He who had no sin became sin so that in him we would become the righteousness of God, the scripture says. This is a gift. Do not expect the same thing from people. Where does the Bible say that people behave that way? They don't. If you sin against somebody and you say, well, I've worked the matter out with God. And God says, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed my transgression from me. Yes, between you and God. What about your neighbor? What about what you did to that person? Maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you need to pick up a phone call, pick up the phone. Maybe you need to meet with a person. Maybe it's been years, whatever. But your guilt is not going to go away until you confess in a biblical fashion. Don't treat other people as if they're God. They're not. There's probably people who are so angry and so bitter at some of the things maybe that you've done. You forgot about it already. You confessed it to God and you think it's over. Whoa, 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 what about the person? And this is what Jesus is asking. This is what the Bible is asking from cover to cover. When we think about uh, forgiveness of sin, and when we look at something like communion, which reminds us that God has forgiven us, that God has given us grace, that God has given us mercy, that, that he's paid something that we could never pay. We have, we have a debt to God. We, have, we owe God, and God has paid it. We often hear, okay, we should be quick, therefore, to forgive people who sin against us because God forgave us, so we should be quick to forgive other people, and that's true. But we should be equally quick to confess 
to people because Jesus has died for us. The, both of them should happen. So grace compels us to true confession, not just true forgiveness, but true confession. And true confession means, hey, God paid a debt that I owed him that I could never pay back. So if I owe somebody, I'm going to make it right with that person. I'm going to do whatever is possible to confess it to that person, to make it right with that person, and yes, to offer restitution to that person. In no way is this negated by the scripture. In no way is this a work to earn your salvation. It is not. It is a skill and a habit that frees the human heart from guilt. Do you, do you see the difference? I know for some of you, you say, I've never, ever heard that that way before. And again, this is because we've devised a way uh, around biblical confession. We found a way. But you will find, if you keep using that model, why, why, why is that guilt still remain? Why is it still there? And that's because the hard thing hasn't been done yet. I'd like the band, if they would, if they would come at this time, and maybe uh, someone who's out in the corridor, if anyone can, if you pop the lights back on. Oh, thank you, someone's there, thank you. Uh, and we're going to have communion together, and the band will come, and Michelle, just play something on the keys as we go through this uh, for a few minutes. Any of you familiar with Alcohol Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous? AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, any of you familiar? I'm not asking you if you're an alcoholic. I'm asking you if you're familiar with them. You ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous? Yes? Do you know what one of their steps is in, in AA? You, you go to an AA meeting, and you stand in front of a bunch of people you don't know, and you say, my name is so-and-so, and I am an alcoholic. And everybody says, welcome so-and-so. Do you know why that's so powerful? Because the per that's a public confession is what it is. The person is in, in a place where I don't know these people and I'm, hum, I'm, I'm humiliated and I'm embarrassed, but this, this is my problem. I am an alcoholic. It's an admission. It's a confession. And I know in Christian circles, there's a big debate. Oh, no, you're not an alcoholic. You're a child of God. Never say you're an alcoholic. Listen, I have a very close friend, a retired pastor friend, very close, and he is an alcoholic. And the way that he thinks about it, he says, yes, I'm a child of God. I know all that. But I cannot even smell alcohol. Because if I smell it, I will drink it. And I, I will drink so much of it that I will black out. I won't even know what I'm doing. So, so he, he has understood and come to a place. Uh, and he's, he's now retired, pastored several uh, churches. And I got to know him over a period of, of many, many years. Uh, and still friends with him today. Uh, but he went through that whole process. And I'm telling you, the, the way that he understands sin and confession is, wow, entirely biblical. Because we have to come to the place where we say, God, it's more than just I'm working it out with you and that's all I have to do. No, if I really want to be free from guilt, then I need to do what you're telling me uh, in the scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have the famous uh, communion chapter, read in many, many uh, evangelical churches whenever communion is acknowledged. And I don't know if, if you all have these little emblems that we use here, very simple, 
You've got the juice and a little wafer. It's all in one, it's one stop shop, okay? It's one little packet here. Uh, and it just makes it a little bit easier. But this is very simple, but this is a picture. It's an illustration. It's a symbol of something really, really important. If any of you wants to participate, you don't have the emblems yet, can you put your hand up and surely we'll serve you in your seat there, okay? Any of you who, who you, want, you want to be a part of this and you don't have an emblem yet, nothing magical going on here, okay? I just want to, to explain what all of this means. And we, we often read this chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, as well we should. But 1 Corinthians 11 calls us to a place of self-confrontation, of self-examination. You know, we, we often read, and I often read the part where, where Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Wonderful. We do that, and we do that often, and we'll continue to do that. But then he calls the church to a place of self-confrontation, self-examination. Anyone who eats the, the, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What? It's self-confrontation that's happening. And he says, a man ought to examine himself. A woman ought to examine herself. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Examine yourself. Is there, is, are, you, are you wanting to offer your gift on the altar today? But you know that there's someone who you've wronged that you need to, you need to make it right with that person. Uh, I have a, a, another pastor friend out, out west in Western Canada. And he told me a story of a church that he went to pastor there. I remember visiting the church many years ago. And you could feel something weird in the church. It, just something ha seemingly had happened in the church. And he, and he told Janet and I the story of how the people in the church hated one another. They really did. They sat on different sides of the auditorium. They wouldn't talk to one another. And when he arrived in the, in the church to pastor the church, people told him in the parking lot, you won't last a month in this church. Welcome. <laughs> and he told me the story of how he got to a place with this church where he, it was a communion service. And he said to them, none of you will take communion today until you get up out of your seat and you go and you make it right with the people who you, it's, it, your relationships are out of whack. And he told me that that's exactly what the people did. They got up out of their seats. There was weeping in the place. And they finally started to make things right. And then they had communion. And the church started to get healthy. And the church started to grow again. And that's kind of what we felt when we visited the church. It was like, just a vibe. You know, something went on here. What was it? That's a biblical understanding of confession. And that's what we do when we take these emblems. We, we acknowledge the grace of God. And we say, oh God, you, you, you went to the cross for me. Jesus uh, went and he hung on that cross. And that's what the, the wafer represents. You can peel back that little thin top layer there. You see, just a, it's a very, very simple wafer. But that's the picture. It's, hey, Jesus went to the cross for my sins. His body was up there. 
and he paid a brutal, brutal, he died a brutal death. We'll celebrate that at Easter. Uh, he, he died a brutal death to pay back a debt that I could never pay God. Never. And, and I acknowledge that, and I am thankful for that. Uh, so let's do that. Let's take this emblem together. Just do it together with me. And then we have the, the juice, which is underneath. And this, this is a picture, again, a symbol. It's an image of the, the blood of Jesus. Uh, the, the, the scripture speaks specifically about this. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. This is a standard that God has. So, you know, you want to please God's standard, you have to die. Uh, but Jesus did it for you. Even his very blood was spilled for us. And that's, that's the image that we have. But remember, folks, it means we're quick to forgive, but we're also quick to confess. And we, and we do so in a way that really, really leads to change. So I call you to a place of self-examination before we have the juice. Is there something that you need to do? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Is it someone you haven't seen in years? Is it your spouse? Is it your fiance? Is it your kids? Is it your parents? Is, is there, is there, you have to make it right with somebody. I call you to that place today and, and challenge you to do what you have to do because then and only then will you truly experience freedom from guilt and will you truly be behaving as a disciple of Jesus. Let's take the juice together.